And you can be seated. God is so good. And I want to encourage you often throughout your day, often, two minutes and just stop everything and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say right now to me? It's not that God's not speaking. It's sometimes we fill our lives so much that we're not listening. We're not hearing. Um, And so just get in the habit of several times. Set a timer on your phone to alert you every couple hours to stop and say, Holy Spirit, what what are you saying to me? And so just a... Something that the Lord put on my heart early this morning and, uh, you know, it just kind of resonated as we were singing that last song, I Want More, and uh, let's do that. So today we're in our series, Trust the Story. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, actually since the, the first week we started this series was when um, the coronavirus shutdown started. And so we were not together in this room. We were live stream 18 weeks ago. Um, that's... It's kind of weird that we started this series right at that point, but uh, that's where we are. And so um, this week, we're going to look in Acts chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible, go to Acts 19. Again, we've been using the book, The Untold Story by Frank Viola. And I'm going to encourage you, if you've not picked up a copy, you can in the back. Um, You can get caught up with us if you want, or you can pick up right where we are. This week, we read pages 121 through 127 that correspond with Acts 19.22 through Acts chapter 20, verse 6, which is what we're going to read um, here in a minute. And he gives us the background of what's going on uh, in this, this story. Next week, we're going to look at the book of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we looked at the book of 1 Corinthians. If you were here last week, you remember, uh, maybe you don't remember, and I'll just remind you, that the letter 1 Corinthians in our Bible is actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Okay, there's a letter we don't have. We also don't have his third letter because it's referenced in the letters, but we don't have copies of it. So we know it was written, we know it was received, but we don't know what it fully said. And then we have his fourth letter, which is our 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to look at that next week. The Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth. He spent 18 months planting that church. And he visited them three times after planting it. So he planted it, started it, 18 months, left, wrote letters, visited back and forth. Scholars disagree when those visits actually took place. And all of this is important because it's, it's the context of the chapter we're going to read in Acts today. And so when he visited them, um, we don't know exactly when it was, but we know there are some cues that we're going to look at that show us this is probably the time period of one of those visits. Last week's letter, 1 Corinthians, is a great message for the American church. So if you didn't hear that, I'd encourage you to go back Um, Corinth and America, lots of similarities. Corinthian church, American church, lots of similarities as well. And Timothy reports to Paul that that letter he wrote was rejected. Okay, so the letter we talked about last week, the church didn't want to read it. They rejected it. Do you know why? Because of one man, strong-willed man in the church, rejected the apostleship of Paul. So he stirred up the rest of the church to reject Paul's letter. The guy who planted them gave 18 months to them, wrote them two letters to help them grow and correct. One guy 
led a revolt and started all of it. We know that from Paul's writings. He talks about it. And the church, so Paul, when he hears about that, goes to the church himself to defend his letter, and the church doesn't receive him. They reject him. This is so important for us to understand. Imagine how you would feel. The church you've planted, you love, you go to, you write, they reject the writing, you go to try to like explain it, and they're still siding with this one guy, they don't want anything to do, they're not, you're not an apostle, you don't have authority, and he leaves, and when he leaves, he writes them a harsh letter. I don't know if you've ever written a harsh email and then deleted it, but he writes them a harsh letter, and the moment he sends it, he regrets it. Ooh, ever been there? But oddly, we find that the, the letter actually produces what they wanted it to produce. It actually produced repentance. So Paul, next week in 2 Corinthians, is going to talk about that. But we're going to see that as we look at Acts chapter 19. And this week, I've titled the message, um, the screen is gone, so um, it'll hopefully come back. But I titled the message, um, Compelled by the Spirit. Compelled by the Spirit, we're going to start in Acts chapter 19, verse 22. And the, I want us to, to um, kind of do the context of what we've already talked about in Acts 19. Because at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, if you've just got a Bible, open it yourself. Um, we're going to read through that passage um, on, either on the screen or um, on your Bible. But in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus. And he's been wanting to go to Rome, but the Spirit keeps preventing him from going to Rome. Okay, so he's got this desire to go to Rome, but he can't go to Rome. And in Acts chapter 19, he converts some disciples of John, remember about 12 of them. He talks to them about baptism. They receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and prophesy. He gets rejected in the synagogue. He starts performing extraordinary miracles. And then all of a sudden, he starts saying, I must go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And interestingly, in Acts chapter 21, Agabus comes and he actually says, Paul, if you go to, to um, Jerusalem, they're going to reject you and they're going to kill you. And so his followers are like, don't go to Jerusalem. Because they're going to kill you. And Paul's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. <laughs> and so the interesting thing in here is a lot of scholars, are, they believe that what has happened is that Luke is trying to show us that Paul is starting to look a lot like Jesus. Twelve disciples, about twelve disciples, baptism, Holy Spirit, tongues and prophecy, rejected in the synagogue, extraordinary miracles, must go to Jerusalem, going to be rejected by the, synagogue, the, the temple in Jerusalem and get arrested. Why is Luke presenting that? Well, well, we're going to talk about that in other weeks, but that's important for us to understand, that Luke is bringing out some aspects of this story that are trying to point to us some of the things about the Apostle Paul that we might not pick up if we're not paying attention to what he's writing. So Acts chapter 19, we're going to pick up in verse 21. Here we are. After all of this happened, all that I just talked about, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. If you have any version other than the NIV, that word decided actually says compelled by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, but for some reason the NIV just, because in the Greek it literally says compelled by the Spirit, but for some reason the NIV decides to put Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that later, 
But so keep that in mind. <clears throat> Passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. In your NIV, if you've got subtitles or if you're in your Bible, my subtitle in the NIV, this next section says, Riot in Ephesus. I don't know if I'm just more aware of riots right now, but there are a whole lot of riots in the book of Acts. Um, there are, and here's one of them, okay? So <clears throat> if I had another title for this sermon, it would be, Things Aren't Always As They Appear. Things aren't always as they appear, and I want us to keep that in mind as we keep reading through here. So verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, we don't think he's a believer, you'll see why, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we've received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So what's the problem here? Well, we know the problem is they're losing money because people are becoming believers and they're not buying these false gods. Is what Demetrius is saying true or false? Is Paul saying that gods made with human hands are no gods at all? I think it's true. I think that's exactly what Paul's preaching. We've read other sermons by Paul. But I want you to think on that because later on, we're going to hear some conflicting words. And that's going to be important. So make sure we remember that. He says, gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. You've got to understand, we talked a little bit about this last week, this city in Ephesus, they, they take their identity from this false god. They have an identity that's rooted in the goddess Artemis. So if you speak against Artemis, you are speaking against everything that they are. And so this is like such blasphemy. This is actually, you're speaking against the empire, if you will. Because this is the Roman Empire. Every city, every place has a god attached to it. And when Paul comes preaching another gospel of the kingdom of God, he's actually preaching a treasonous message, if you will. So, we keep going on. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. <clears throat> if you remember, 
This was like, uh, this happened a few chapters ago in Thessalonica. When they couldn't get Paul, they just grabbed someone else and they took him in. So they're just going to take anybody into the theater and they're going to have this out. They're going to just go all full out on this, whatever's going to happen. So Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. Yeah, I love Paul. Paul is willing to go before a mob and try to reason with them. He does it all the time in the book of Acts. He's hopeful he can convince them. Generally, he doesn't do well. If you look at the times that he does this, it doesn't work. So what do his disciples say? His disciples won't let him. You know, you're not going in there. (laughs) That is not going to end well for anybody. You're not going in. But then look at this next line. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. I want you to see the influence of the Apostle Paul. He has somehow remained true to preaching the gospel and yet somehow had influence with leaders. We don't know whether these men are believers or unbelievers. We just know they're friends of Paul. The wording gives us no reason to believe that they're believers. But they are high-ranking officials and they are friends of Paul. And for some reason, they're saying, Paul, do not go in that theater. Now, there could be two reasons. At least in my mind. One, they're concerned for Paul because they care about him. Two, they know Paul and they know he's not going to calm the crowd down. It's going to get worse. (laughs) And they don't want it to get worse. So we don't know exactly why they're telling him not to go in. But they're saying, don't go in. And he has enough influence with them that they're going to say that to him. Okay? So then the assembly. Let's go back to them. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there. Can I tell you something? I don't care what we want to call it, whether we want to call it a riot, a protest, a demonstration, or a rally. If the point is to get you charged emotionally so that you act a certain way, be sure you know why you're there. Be sure you know the full counsel of God's word and how to apply it. And do not let the emotion of the moment cause you to act contrary to God's word. Okay, so the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. Yay for Alexander. And they shouted instructions to him. Now, we don't know if Alexander's a believer or if he's just a Jew. We do know that the Jews want to distance themselves from Paul because of the freedoms the Jews have. They don't want to lose because of what Paul is doing. Paul is causing a riot, and the Jews do not like this. They want to keep their freedoms, and we'll talk about their freedoms in a second. So they push Alexander to the front. He motioned for silence, and obviously he's got enough pull in the community that there's silence. And he's going to start making his defense, but they realize he's a Jew. What's the problem with that? Well, the Jews don't worship false gods, so they don't want to listen to him because why are we there? We're there for our false gods. Ah! So for two hours, they start shouting in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. They're in this theater shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's interesting. You know, I find sometimes the apostle Paul uses his citizenship to help him, and sometimes he doesn't even bring it up. You remember, sometimes it it keeps him from being beaten, keeps him from being arrested, but other times, like the time in Philippi, 
He doesn't say anything. He gets beaten and thrown into prison. And so what do they do in response when they're in prison in Philippi? They worship. And what, what does God do? He sends an earthquake that opens the prison cells. And the, the Philippian jailer and his entire family get saved. See, there are times I think we need to use our citizenship. And then there are times we don't. And how do we know which time to exercise? I think we need to learn to hear the voice of the Spirit. Because I think sometimes Paul uses it, and sometimes Paul doesn't use it. But he never uses it for himself alone. He does it to further his cause. Like he uses it later to appeal to Caesar. Why? Because he wants to go to Rome. <laughs> and so, and if you remember, one of, I don't remember if it's Festus or who it is that says he could be released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. We can let him out of jail, but now we have to send him on to Rome. Well, that's because Paul wanted to go to Rome. And that's why he appealed to Caesar, not just for his own freedom. Okay, so we've got to make sure we're understanding these things. Let's read the last part of it. So the city clerk. Now, I don't know if you read city clerk and think powerful guy or paper pusher. <laughs> but I think paper pusher. I'm like city clerk. Hmm. And now, if you're a city clerk watching today, please do not be offended by that comment. You could probably inform me that city clerks do far more than I am knowledgeable of. But I think this guy doesn't have a lot of clout, but apparently he does because he gets up and says, fellow Ephesians, doesn't the whole world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, <laughs> that just makes me laugh. Really? They're undeniable? You ought to calm down. And not do anything rash. You have brought these. Now listen to these words. You have brought these men here. Though they have neither robbed temples. Nor blasphemed our goddess. Somebody's lying. Because if Paul has preached. That, you, that idols are not gods at all. That's blasphemy. So either this clerk doesn't know what Paul's preaching or somebody's not giving the truth here. What I think might be happening is this guy's just trying to quiet the riot and he's going to say whatever needs to be said. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly as it is. We're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. you got to remember, the Roman Empire is huge. It stretches from Spain almost to India at some point. So for Rome to really have control over the empire, they need to have people that squash riots like this. Okay? So this guy knows if we riot and we cause a disturbance, Rome is going to come in and they're going to be hard on us. They're going to take away our rights. They're going to do stuff. So I need to quiet this thing down. I can't let them act like this. They don't live in a free society where you can say and you can act and you can, and you're, if Rome views you as a threat, all bets are off. There's no one to appeal to if Caesar says it. Okay, so this guy knows. Uh, so we come to this in, uh, you know, in chapter 20. Um, I don't want to read this section, but we also read it this week. The uproar ended, and then Paul is going to leave there. He's going to travel to Macedonia. He's going to stay there. Jews are going to plot against him there. 
And he, we believe, uh, Frank goes into this in the book, he kind of outlines it a little bit better, that the Jews were going to be on the ship with Paul. So Paul has to change his travel plans because he doesn't want to be on the ship with these guys that are going to try to throw him overboard. Okay, so he's got to change his travel plans and he goes up back up through Macedonia. Um, and then Timothy comes to him. And I want you to notice this last thing here. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. Why is that important? I want you to understand, Paul is still a practicing Jew. This is something that we don't understand sometimes in our Western Christian mindset. We think when they say there's no longer Jew or Gentile, that Jews just stopped practicing the law. They didn't stop practicing the law ever. They were Jews. Now, none of them believed, and if we have time, we'll get to Habakkuk and I'll show you this. None of the Jews well, at least the righteous Jews, believed that you were justified by keeping the law. They believed you were justified by faith. It's in the prophet Habakkuk. It's in the writings of the New Testament. We are justified by faith, not by keeping the law. But the Jews believed they still were called to live out the law, its feasts included, because that's who they were. That was their identity. Now, the body of Christ, there's no distinction in the body of Christ. We're all part of the family of God. We're all full citizens of God's kingdom, whether we are Jew following Torah or whether we are Gentile and just following Jesus. We're full brothers and sisters. But the Jews kept practicing, and we sometimes don't understand that, and we don't understand the things Scripture's telling us because we don't understand that. So I'm going to keep reemphasizing that to us because... It's important. So all of this is happening to Paul, and I want us to know what is Paul thinking? What's he feeling with all of this pressure, with all of these things that are going on? Well, he tells us, and we're going to drill into this a lot more next week when we read 2 Corinthians, but let's just look at two passages. When we came into Macedonia, okay, we just read it, chapter 20, he comes into Macedonia. We had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. <laughs> Don't you just love that God comforts us by sending the right person at the right time? Never forget you might be the right person at the right time. And never think that when you think you need to send someone a message, write them a card, pick up the phone, that that's something you should dismiss. You might be the right person at the right time, even if you don't even know what to say. Okay? God comforts us through his, other, through his people. So what does Titus do? He, not only Titus, but also by his coming, the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter. Remember that mean letter he wrote that he wished he hadn't? I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. If your sorrow is a worldly sorrow that's taking you further into despair, it is, does not come from God. But if our sorrow leads us to change our thinking and behavior, it comes from God. That's what Paul's telling them. So then that's happening here in Acts chapter 20. Let's go to 
2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to take a step back because now he's back in Ephesus, in Asia. Look at what he says about that time. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. I love that phrase. I do. Because that tells me this guy who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, who was led off into the, to a, an area to be taught by Jesus for some years and went and experienced the third heaven and visions and had extraordinary miracles done and planted all these churches. Even he came to a place where he despaired even of life. It's interesting that this is the part of the series where we are right now because there are times during my week that I, I feel this because there are pressures everywhere. There are pressures from within. There are pressures from without. There are all these voices. I, I, sometimes you just mentally are like, I'm just so tired of it all. I'm tired of needing to make decisions. I'm tired of adulting. I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm just tired. And so we can take heart that the Apostle Paul found himself in that same place. But we must not stay there. Because look at what he goes on to say. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In a moment, we're going to look at some scripture passages that remind us that our earth is going to experience a shaking. And the reason it is shaken is so that only the eternal things can last. And what happens when things in our lives get shaken is it produces anxiety. Because things that we had put our trust in, that we maybe didn't even know we had put our trust in, things that we had made idolatry in our lives that maybe we didn't know we had exalted to that status in our lives, all of a sudden those things start to shake because anything that is temporary, anything that is temporary will shake. But it doesn't shake so that we feel anxiety. It doesn't shake so that we lash out at people. It shakes so that the unshakable can be separated from what can be shaken. So that you and I can make sure that we are trusting in a God that can never be shaken. And if we're going to live like that, you and I have got to learn to rely on that God that we cannot see. And if we're going to do that, we cannot judge things by appearance. We cannot. We must judge things by the Spirit of God because things are not always like they seem. Paul is experiencing opposition from the Gentiles, sinners. He's also experiencing opposition from the Jews. He's also experiencing oppositions from the church that he planted. There are accusations being leveled against Paul. He has no concern for the churches. He's preaching for his own gain. He has no apostolic authority. He's not a very good speaker. But are these accusations true? Or are they not true? They seem true. It looks like God has kind of put Paul out to pasture. You think Paul ever doubted that what he was doing was even the right thing? 
See, Jesus said that the world would hate us. You remember that? And he also said why. He said that they will hate you because they hate me. And you are my disciples. The problem is, our question is not, do they hate us? Because that's the question we're asking. The question is, are we his disciples? If we ask the question, do they hate us and not why do they hate us, we're going to miss it. Because the world might hate us as Christians, not because we look like Jesus, but because we're being selfish, because we're being rude, because we're being mean. It's possible. I mean, if we act a certain way, the world might hate us, and we can stand up and say, see, the world hates us because they would, Jesus prophesied it. But if we, don't, if we don't step back and make sure that the why is also present, we might get ourselves into some trouble. You, when you look at the Roman Empire, there's a lot of similarities between the Roman Empire and our American style of government, our democratic republic, but there's also a lot of differences. We talked a little bit about that. Caesar gets to say what Caesar wants, and he just does it. But the Jews had a lot of freedom in the, the Roman Empire, okay? The Jews, because of Herod the Great, I don't know if you know, but when you read your New Testament and you see the word Herod, it's not all Herod the Great. There's Herod Antipas, there's Herod Philip, there's Herod the Tetrarch. I mean, there's different Herods, okay? But Herod the Great comes along, and Caesar loves Herod the Great because he keeps peace in this Jewish area that no one else can seem to keep peace in. Well, how does Herod keep the peace? Well, Herod keeps the peace because he says to Caesar, the Jews are not going to worship you as God. Because they can't. <laughs> but what they will do every single day in the temple, the Jews will offer a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar. Well, the Jews are willing to offer a sacrifice to Jehovah <laughs> on behalf of Caesar. But Caesar thinks, oh, they're offering a, a sacrifice in their temple for me. Eh, not to you, but for you. Herod was, a, he was brilliant. He was a genius. And he built some pretty awesome places. His sons that came after him never could control his empire the way Herod did. But Herod got Jews everywhere this freedom. They didn't have to worship Caesar the way that they did. They could live within the Roman Empire within their religion. They didn't have to change Rome. Herod got them all the rights and privileges they needed to be Jews within the Roman Empire. What I think happens sometimes is the best way I can describe it is in computer terms. So if you know anything about computers, you'll get this. If you know nothing, you, you might not. If you have a computer, it has an operating system. So if you have a PC, you have a Windows computer. If you have a MacBook, you have Catalina or some version sooner. That's the operating system. Our computers also have software. They have programs that we run on our operating systems. If you try to download a piece of software from Windows that runs on Windows onto a MacBook, you will have problems. In fact, it will not work. You have to make sure that your software is for the system that you're using it on. And what I think we do sometimes in, in the church is we take kingdom software and we try to put it on worldly operating systems, and it doesn't work. We are called to be a kingdom, 
Not make a kingdom, be a kingdom. Does that mean we should not be involved in politics or any? No, absolutely we should be involved because we do have the right to vote. We should vote. Does that mean we shouldn't have people serve in government offices? Absolutely not because we should vote. We should put people in office that are believers, that are going to make laws that help us, that, that serve. But we sometimes think we're trying to create a kingdom that Jesus didn't come to create because Jesus already created the kingdom. If you remember the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, remember he said, um, there's such a war within me because the things I want to do, I, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. And who can set me free? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who sets me free. So when we demand that people that don't have Christ, that don't have the Spirit, believe what we believe about God, does not the same war happen within them without the same peace? You and I need to be making sure that we are advancing the kingdom of God. It is the only thing that can bring peace. In fact, the more we try to present something else, the more this we're going to find. And when Paul finds himself in this, because he preaches the gospel, but it affects the finances of the people of the community, and they raise a revolt against him. But Paul wants to address it. His disciples say no. The officials say no. In fact, the officials actually stand up and fight for him. And so we need to be careful when the scripture tells us, hey, pray for your leaders so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives. Did you know that it says that? Pray for your leaders so you can live. But you know what we can do? We can actually idolize peaceful and quiet lives and say, I just want to go back. I just want to go back to a time when I just want to, I want to have a time. I want, I want peaceful and quiet. Paul's the one that told us to pray for that. But did Paul have a peaceful and quiet life? On the inside. <laughs> Not on the outside. Are you, what are you saying, Pastor Tom? I'm saying you and I need to go back to the beginning of this passage where Paul, compelled by the Spirit, not decided. The NIV says Paul decided to do this. Got a lot of Christians deciding to do things today. A lot of us. We're just deciding. We need to be compelled by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 21, I alluded to it earlier, where Agabus comes, Paul again says it, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. How did Paul get to this place? How do we get to the place where we're not just deciding, but we're being compelled by the Spirit? I wish Luke would have told us how Paul reached this decision. Because as a Westerner, I like lists. I like to know, Paul, what did you do? Excuse me. What was the first thing you did? What was the second thing you did? What was the third thing you did? How do I know I want, I, want thing, I want steps, I want handles. And Paul doesn't give us them, Luke doesn't give us them because it comes from a life being filled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Did Paul see a dream? Did he have a prophecy? Did he have a vision? Sometimes. I mean, remember he had the vision of the Macedonian man that said, come over here, and then they prayed about it and they, they determined that that dream meant they should go. 
Well, this, the New Testament tells us that maybe it's going to be dreams or visions that we have. But it tells us in 2 Thessalonians, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. There are a lot of prophecies that are coming up right now on YouTube and Facebook and all kinds of prophecies. Do you know what the scripture says to do? Test every single one of them. I don't care if they come by your most accurate, famous prophet. The scripture seems to say part of that prophecy will be good. Hold on to it. Part of that prophecy will be evil. Throw it out. We have to test these things. In Corinthians chapter 14, two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is said. Others in the local body of believers, we've got to test these things. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. These prophecies that we keep, we, we want to, oh, I want to know about these prophecies. I want to know about these prophecies. Make sure you're grounded on the full counsel of God, God's word. Wrestle together with other believers that you walk in faith with. I mean, we can all go anywhere we want to find someone to support whatever we want to support. But if we walk together with a group of believers, the way the book of Acts chapter 2 calls us to. This is what they're called to do in their daily lives. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Devote yourselves to the fellowship. Let's, let me ask this question. Would your Bible study right now be considered devoted to the apostles' teaching? Because if we're not devoted to the apostles' teaching, we might be making a lot of decisions, but we might not be compelled by the Spirit. If we think that somehow in, as the return of Christ gets closer and closer, we can spend less and less time in the word. Got real quiet. Okay, to the fellowship. Can I tell you that this word fellowship is not a potluck? <laughs> this is not even about sharing a meal together. That's a coming. The word fellowship is more than small talk. It's not getting together for a cup of coffee and talking about sports, talking about our kids. Talk. This is about getting together and wrestling together with dreams, with prophecies, with the words of Jesus, with how to live out the words of Jesus, the exact representation of God, with the letters from the New Testament, with the full counsel of God's word. When's the last time you and I sat down with other believers over a cup of coffee and we wrestled together, we fellowshiped like this? Because the, the, when the Hebrew says, don't forsake assembling together, we think, oh, don't forget to show up for church on Sunday. That's not what he's talking about. In the last days, you better start wrestling together with people you do life with, people you can trust, people you watch the fruit of their life, people you know, people who have studied together with you, and you have better fellowship together if you're going to know how to be compelled by the Spirit and not just make decisions. We have to commit ourselves to the breaking of bread. This doesn't mean just sharing meals. That's part of it. The reason that we share meals with each other is because some people don't have as much. When you invite people over to your home for a meal, are you just inviting people that can have a meal at their own house because you like them? Or are you inviting people that are down on their luck right now and they need food? That's what's being implied. I'm not saying don't invite people that you like over to your home. Do it. 
just make sure that that's not all we do. This is what it means to break bread. Look, they were actually even selling possessions so that they could give to people in need instead of saying, well, why are you in need? Are you making right decisions? Are you putting some of your money away? Why, why Why weren't you saved up for a rainy day? And they were committed to prayer. Prayer. Would, would our prayer lives have the word devoted attached to them? This is how we hear the Spirit. Now, you, if you Google, how do I hear the voice of the Spirit? You'll find a checklist. And you can use that checklist to be devoted to the Spirit and make decisions, and that'll be great. But if we want to make sure in these last days we're making decisions compelled by the Spirit and not just deciding things, we better make sure we're committed to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Because in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about these last days. Don't worry, I'm almost finished. In these last days, you're going to be handed over to be persecuted. You're going to be put to death. You're going to be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They'll betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the agape, the love of most, will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In Luke chapter 21, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Hebrews chapter 12. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If I had unlimited time today, which I don't, I would take us to the book of Habakkuk. And I'd encourage you, it's a three-chapter book, easy read. I'd encourage you to read the book of Habakkuk. I love the book of Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk basically complains to God. Ever been there? He's, and his complaint is, why are, why are evil people, why, what, what's going on? Like, stop all this evil in my world. Like, what, are you just or not just? What's, what's going on? And God basically says to him, If I told you what I was up to, you wouldn't believe it. Because I'm going to use the ruthless Babylonians to come and destroy you. So Habakkuk, next complaint. How could you do that? I mean, first he flatters God. I mean, surely you are a righteous God. You are, it says all these things. And then he's like, how is that even possible? I mean, granted, we've made mistakes. But you're using people that are way more ruthless than us. What? Have you, you know, maybe missed a step? I mean, you wouldn't tell God he's off his rocker. (laughs) But surely maybe you're, you're just testing me. And God comes again and says, at the end, the wicked are going to get what they deserve. But my righteous 
Listen, Old Testament, Habakkuk. But my righteous will live by faith. Live by faith. In fact, Paul, three times in the New Testament, we find that phrase, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Pointing back to Habakkuk. And the last, let's just at least read the last chapter of Habakkuk. In just this last part. This is what Habakkuk says at the end. This is great. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then he concludes his song with this word. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to tread on the heights. Here's what I hope we've heard today. One, it's okay to despair even of life. It's okay right now to just be sick of everything. It's okay. It's not okay to stay there. But if you feel that way, you are in great company. The Apostle Paul felt that way. We as a body need to reset our hearts and our minds on the kingdom of God. We need to ask in our personal lives, am I living based on my own preference, my own desires, or am I living according to the kingdom? As a church, is what we're doing, are we fighting to maintain a church system that's actually based more on culture than on kingdom? Are we really a disciple-making body? Are we really disciples-making disciples? Are we really building the kingdom? Or is there areas of our lives maybe we need to repent? You know, Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation through the Apostle John, and the majority of the churches are told to repent of something. Now, we could be the few churches that Jesus didn't say repent of anything, but we might even be the Laodicean church where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the interesting thing is, is the church world has used that phrase to tell sinners, Jesus stands at your door knocking. But Jesus was actually talking to a church. He's like, I'm at the door knocking, but you're inside saying, we don't need anything. We've got everything we need. We're rich. And Jesus is like, no, you're actually miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I pray to God that how we view ourselves as a church matches how Jesus views us. And if it doesn't, I pray we repent. Not, oh, sit in sackcloth and ashes, feel guilty for 17 years. Repent means agree with God, change your behavior. That's all he wants from us. To acknowledge, hey, we've been selfish. We gotta stop being selfish. Give us grace to do that. We've been mean. We gotta stop being mean. Help us do that. We've been lazy. We've been indifferent. We've been whatever. What's he saying to our church? I hope above all, that you and I, this is my prayer for us as a church, that we would overflow with hope through the power of the Spirit and that we would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to real fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. And so, Father, that's my prayer.
for my life. That's my prayer for this body. That's my prayer for your church in this world right now. God, for those especially that are in that place of despair, God, they're they're tired, they're weary and doing good. God, I pray that today they would overflow with hope by the power of your spirit. God, not in a frenzy of emotion because my words or someone else's words got us all worked up. God, we don't want that hype. We want truth. God, that causes us to look at our situation and say, no, I'm going to keep doing what is right even though I'm weary because I know that I will reap a harvest if I do not give up. I'm going to keep doing what is good to everyone. I'm going to keep acting as I need to act according to the kingdom because it will produce harvest. So God, cause us to overflow with that unshakable hope today. Help us as a body to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. God, to be men and women devoted to your word, devoted to fellowship, to the community of believers. God, where we wrestle with these issues, where we wrestle with your word and what you're saying to us and how to apply it in our our own personal lives, how to apply it in our church culture, how to apply it in our community, how to apply it in this world today. God, to to really move beyond just talking about small talk, talking about our possessions, talking about the new things we just bought, talking about everything that can be shaken and not talking about the unshakable truths of your kingdom. God, forgive us for having conversations that are dominated by shakable things and not enough conversations dominated by unshakable things. Help us to want to learn and grow and understand who you are. God, make us people of hospitality that share not just our table, but God, share our possessions. Share with those that are in need. God, not just those that we love, not just those that are kind, but just like you. God, even being kind to the unkind because that's who you are. And above all, make us people that are devoted to prayer in our personal lives, in our corporate body, a church devoted to prayer. God, may these things be established in our hearts so that like the Apostle Paul, we can make decisions compelled by your spirit and not just because we've decided. Make us people of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I know I went a little long, but you probably expect that. And you give me mercy and grace, and I love you for it. But uh, we're, we're, we dismiss from the 